You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So if you've been with us, you know that we have been walking through a study of the Gospel of Luke, and we continue on in that series today. And we come to a story that is very familiar to many of you, maybe most of you. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And even for those who aren't, you know, into their Bibles, don't read their Bibles, maybe have no association with God's word, they still kind of get the gist of the Good Samaritan. I mean, it's, it's very prevalent in our culture. For instance, we have a hospital in our community called Good Samaritan Hospital. We have Good Samaritan laws that are designed to protect you that if you do try to be a Good Samaritan to someone and it doesn't go so well, you can't get sued or the like, right? So this is a story that is familiar to many of us. It's familiar to me. I've read it a number of times, but I can honestly tell you in my preparation for our time here this morning, this week, I feel like it's a brand new story to me. There are so many layers. There is so much depth. There is so much significance to this story. And for us to really get our hands around how compelling this story is, how radical this story is that Jesus told, how amazing, how powerful it is, you need to understand a little history because I'm not sure we have a frame of reference for what we're about to read. In 722 BC, the first major world superpower swept down into northern Israel. It was known as the Assyrian Empire. And this was the first known world superpower in what we now know as the Middle East. And they literally conquered all of the Middle East, parts of Asia. There was nothing that had ever been seen like them. And they came because God allowed them to come. In fact, in the prophets, written hundreds and hundreds of years before this happened, Isaiah, Jeremiah, it said over and over again, if you as my people will not repent, which means to turn, if you will not turn back to me and love me, live in right relationship with me, you are going to force my hand, you are going to force me to the point where I have to judge what you're doing. And he gave them chance after chance after chance after chance to do that, and they didn't. And so, The Assyrian Empire comes. They conquer what was basically the known world at that time, and they were ruthless, they were brutal, they were savage, and they were shrewd. Because what they would do was when they came into your region and conquered your people, they would then take the majority of you and displace you. And they would move you to another part of their empire, usually hundreds of miles away, and drop you into a foreign culture where they spoke a different language than you, had different customs to you, different culture, what have you. And that was so you would not spark a rebellion. And so they would displace people all over their empire in order to keep the peace. It was a very shrewd move to maintain control over all the areas they had conquered. Well, they did this in northern Israel. They deported a large number of the Jewish population to another part of their empire, and they brought in a bunch of folks who weren't Jewish at all in any way. And so these folks settled in, and they began to intermarry among the Jews, and over time they became the culture known as the Samaritan culture. But it wasn't just that they were ethnically different than the Jewish people, culturally different, in some ways some language differences, they were religiously different. In fact, they declared to the Jews that the Jews' way of worship was absolutely wrong. 
The Samaritans chose to observe only a portion of the Old Testament. They set up their own temple for temple worship at a mountain called Mount Gerizim, and they declared the Jews apostate. You're wrong. What you believe is wrong. You don't worship God the right way. And so now you begin to get a better feel for the animosity between these two people groups. It wasn't that they just didn't like each other. They were enemies. They hated each other. 200 years prior to Jesus appearing on the scene, the Jews had burned down the temple of the Samaritans. So the Samaritans in kind, in Jesus' boyhood years, had desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. And so there was this bad blood that went back centuries between these two peoples. Literally, Jewish people would go the long way around the Samaritan territory so they wouldn't have to walk through it and be around them. That's how bad it was. And now we have a frame of reference for the story of the Good Samaritan. And the question that will surface in this story is, who is my neighbor? But it's not the real question. And it's not the question that Jesus in turn will ask of us as he tells this story. So what is the real question? If the question isn't, if the question isn't who is my neighbor, what's the real question? Well, let's watch for this together as I read this story to you. If you have a Bible and you're old school like me and you have a hard copy Bible, go ahead and open that. Otherwise, turn on your phone, your tablet, however you choose to get there. If you don't have a Bible, I will read it to you as we put it up on the screens here. This is what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now let's begin to walk our way through this, this very familiar story to many of us. So this expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. And an expert in the law was someone who was just that. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. That's what they did. That's what they studied. They were Old Testament experts. This would be in our day's equivalent, probably like a seminary professor. So this would be like our Dr. Gary Brashears or our Dr. Josh Matthews standing up from our preaching team and saying, hey, Jesus, what about this? And he's trying to test Jesus. And another word for that is he's trying to trap Jesus. 
And so Jesus puts the question back on him and says, what do you think? And so he responds. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 in the Old Testament, which is known as the Shema or the hearing. And faithful Jews would recite this two times every day. In fact, there are practicing, practicing Jews to this day who will still recite the Shema twice a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. But he merges that, he meshes that, he connects that to a quote out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Puts these two together and says, that's what it means to live. That, that's what it means to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, gold star for you. You got it right. Because Jesus himself said in Matthew 22, in another gospel, said, what is the entire summation of the Old and New Testament? If you were to boil it down to two things, love God, love people. So he gets it right. Or does he? Jesus tells him, do this and you will live. And how does he respond? Now, in some of your translations, it will say an expert in the law. In others, it will say a lawyer. Both work, but basically, he's an Old Testament lawyer, so typical lawyer, he's looking for the loophole, right? He wants to justify himself, which is another way of saying he wants to declare himself righteous. That's what justify means, to declare righteous. So let me ask you a question. In our culture, is it a good thing or a bad thing to be self-righteous? What do you associate with that? In most cases, it's negative, right? A self-righteous person is a prideful person, is an arrogant person, is a proud person. And that's essentially what this lawyer, this expert, is, is asserting about himself. He's basically saying, well, put some parameters on that for me. And yes, he is. He's looking for the loophole here. But before we're too hard on him, in our brokenness, can't we be like that? When God calls us to total obedience, can't we settle for partial obedience at times? I can sometimes gravitate to that. God, I don't feel like doing that. God, I don't want to do that. God, I'm not going to do that. Partial obedience is still disobedience and so he's looking for a way out what really what does it mean to, to to love my neighbor and so he asks the question who's my neighbor and then Jesus tells this unbelievable story now we have to appreciate in this story Jesus told this was a common frame of reference this road from Jerusalem to Jericho everybody traveled in fact, for practicing Jews, pious Jews, they would travel this road at least three times a year because there were festivals three times a year that the Old Testament um, required them to celebrate in Jerusalem. If there was any way to make a pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem, you went to Jerusalem to celebrate, celebrate those festivals. And so everybody knew this road. It was about 17 miles long. Jerusalem is, sets about, I think, three, 4,000 feet, and it drops in elevation to Jericho, and it goes through this desolate rugged country, um, it's isolated, uh, it's dangerous. In fact, it was called the road of blood among many of the Jews because there were so many people who got robbed, attacked, and killed on this road. It was commonplace, lots of places for bandits, thieves, 
thugs to hide out and to ambush people. So this would be like Jesus saying in our vernacular, okay, well, there's this dude who was traveling down I-5, and we go, oh, yeah, we all know what I-5 is. Same for them. Oh, yeah, everyone knows the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's dangerous. Okay, things happen. So this guy gets jumped, and he gets beat to a pulp. And so two good guys are about to come by. And these are the two types of people you would expect to help someone who had got beaten up on the road, especially a fellow Jew. And what happens? The priest walks across the road and goes on by. And the Levite walks across the road and goes on by on the other side. Now the irony here was in their temple responsibilities, the priest, the Levite, they had charge of the temple treasury. They were the ones who actually would dispense money and financial help to people in need. And they do nothing to help this fellow Jew who's lying there beaten to a pulp. We're not told why they passed by on the other side. Could it be that they thought he was dead and therefore they didn't want to become ritually unclean by touching him, so you know they needed to get to the temple to do God's work, so they're not gonna touch him, or could it be he was so covered in blood that they could tell he was still alive, but they didn't wanna be ritually defiled, ceremonially defiled by the blood, so they didn't wanna help for that reason? Or could it be that they put two and two together and looked at that guy and said, I don't wanna end up like him. Those guys may still be around. They could be hiding around the next turn. I'm, I'm not stopping. Whatever the reason, the two very people who you would expect to help, don't. And then along comes a Samaritan. Now keep in mind that frame of reference that I gave you going into this. There is centuries of bad blood and hatred and animosity between these two people groups. I couldn't think of a reasonable frame of reference in our culture that would, that would give us an idea of what this was like. And what does he do? He helps. But he doesn't just help. How he helps is amazing in this story. Number one, his courage. He puts himself at risk and puts his own life on the line to stop and help this man. Those bandits could still be around. It could mean his life if he stops and helps and he helps this enemy anyway. And he helps him extravagantly. He puts him on his donkey. We have no idea how far away this inn was. It could have been miles away. And so he gets off and he walks the journey to this inn and puts this injured man on his own donkey. He serves him incredibly. It's amazing. And then we're told when he gets there, he takes out two denarii. And just so we're on the same page, that's equivalent to roughly two days wages for you and me. So let me ask you a question. Do you have two days of discretionary income in your budget to help someone along the way who really needs it, who you were not planning on helping? For those of you who provide for your family or if you don't work outside the home but someone is providing for your family, do you really have two days of discretionary income to give to someone who you don't know who needs help at any given time? I don't. We don't. We, we live and die by a budget. We always have. And we give to the mission and vision here and we give to other kingdom work, but I don't have two days wages and I would submit to you, we don't know this for sure, but I would submit to you from the tone of this story, neither did the Samaritan. At great sacrifice, he helps this man. And that's not all. He says that he will pay even more money if that's what it takes till this man is nursed back 
to health. So here's the bombshell. Many of us would struggle, hesitate, be reluctant to help someone we didn't know in this way. But would you do this for an enemy? Please understand and appreciate this expert in the law had such animosity towards Samaritans, he wouldn't even say his name. Did you see how he responded when Jesus asked him the conclusion of the story? The one who had mercy on him. He wouldn't even say the Samaritan. That's how deep the animosity ran. A good Samaritan, as we know him today, was an oxymoron to a Jew in the first century. There is no such thing. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. And yet that's what's on display here. Okay, now this comes home for you and me. Who does this? Who loves like this? Why would you love like this? What does this story tell us? And there is a clue in how Jesus told the story and how this impacts you and me. What if Jesus would have put the Jew in the saddle and the Samaritan beat up and bleeding on the ground? How do you think the expert in the law would have responded? I think he would have said, well, of course, in his pride. Of course, a Jewish person is going to do the right thing, but at the same time, he probably would have said, but no self-respecting Jew would ever do that. If there's a wounded Samaritan on the road, I'm gonna ride my donkey over him and put him out of his misery. Or at the very least, I'm gonna ignore him. What self-respecting Jew would help a Samaritan? You know, Jesus, that's a really nice story. That works for you. That's a nice, ethical, moral story, but I ain't doing that. But what does Jesus do instead? He puts the Jew on the ground and the Samaritan in the saddle. And all of a sudden, whose story is this? That could have been the expert in the law on the ground there bleeding. And an enemy comes by and helps him when no one else will. An enemy who owes him nothing. That's an entirely different story. It's the expert in the law story. It's my story. And it's your story. Because it is the story of God and us. Who is the real good Samaritan in this story? It's Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 in the New Testament puts it like this. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Sometimes we treat God like he's lucky to have us on the team. Do you realize and appreciate all of us start out in the same place as enemies of God? And quite frankly, that's where some of you are here this morning. Because until you respond to and receive his love in your life, you're an enemy of God. Because in your heart of hearts, in your brokenness and in mind, apart from Jesus, we're selfish, self-focused, self-absorbed people. And we tend to make life all about us. And there is no way you can love someone the way this story talks about if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because the only way you can love like this is because you've been loved like this. 
Look what Romans goes on to say here. This righteousness is given through faith. In Jesus Christ to all who believe, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You cannot declare yourself righteous, which another way to say in our culture is you cannot reasonably say, I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm good without God. Yeah, you really aren't. And all this will be if you don't receive and respond to the love of Jesus for you is a nice moral ethical story. Wow, that's really great. Too bad no one does that. Well, actually they do. No one loves like this. Yeah, they do. Because God loves like this. And therefore people who respond to his love for them will also love like this. The bottom line is until you see Jesus as your good Samaritan, you will never be one yourself. But if you will respond to and receive his love, there is a promise in here for you and for me, and it's this. You want to live life to the fullest, then you do it by loving other people. The social sciences over and over and over again, you go Google this, Google this and look this up. I did. There is a mountain of social science behavioral evidence that just completely, absolutely declares and proves you need to be loved and you need to love others. You need to receive love and you need to give love. It's what defines us as people. God hardwired us to be that way and therefore, when it comes to giving love, we give it wisely but we give it extravagantly and boy oh boy, does this story now begin to become very, very practical and personal. Why do you love other people? How many of us love other people because they're like us? They look like us. They act like us. They're our culture. They dress the way we do. They have values similar to what we do. But do we love others even in that group because of what is in it for us? Do you ever find yourself loving other people because of what they can potentially do for you? What you can potentially get out of it? You know, on one level, expecting to get a thank you, expecting to get appreciation, expecting to get acknowledged. But is that how we're supposed to love? What did Jesus say in Luke chapter six? Love your enemies without expecting to get anything back. Don't just love the people who are easy to love in your life. You realize what this is saying? Love your enemies. Be kind to the ungrateful and wicked. God, why do you want me to do that? Oh, it's because I was ungrateful and wicked when you found me and loved me. I've been loved like this, therefore I can love other people. And now does this really get tough? Okay, so I'm not just called to love people who are easy to love. Jesus has now raised the bar to those people who are really difficult to love. Critical people. Condemning people. Judgmental people. People who have wronged me and hurt me. People who would say they're my enemy. 
And to take that a step further, how often then do we put conditions on who we love and how we'll love? I mean, enter this story with me for just a minute. This Jewish man was traveling, evidently unarmed, alone, through a desolate, dangerous part of the country. Did he make some choices there that maybe weren't good choices? I mean, this is analogous to what would we say to someone who they're in a bad part of Portland and you, you define the part. You think of a part of Portland where you would not want to be at night, unarmed, alone, no one around, putting yourself in harm's way. We would say, what in the world are you doing? Of course you got beat up. You made some profoundly bad choices in your life. And if we're honest, how often do we judge people by the bad choices they've made? And yes, they've made bad choices. And so we say, live with the consequences. I mean, you, you kind of brought that on yourself. And so we make people qualify for our love or our help. But is that what Jesus is teaching here? Now again, please understand, we need to be wise in how we love, but we need to be extravagant in how we love. For years, I've, I've heard about my father's house, which is a ministry right here in our community. I know Kathy Weiss, the executive director. We've talked a number of times. We've had a partnership with them as a church for a lot of years. I've never really seen up close and personal what they do. So I scheduled a tour this last week and went by and I strongly recommend to you that at some point you get an up-close, up-front look at the incredible ministry that my father's house has in our community. Do you realize just in Multnomah County there are over 300 families that are homeless on any given day? And they're able to take in a number of those families. And yes, a number of those families and individuals are homeless and in difficult places because of the profoundly poor life choices they've made. But they love and help them anyway. Don't enable them. Don't reinforce those poor choices. In fact, one of their values is they teach responsibility and they teach folks to own their choices, bad and good. And for that, as well as because they love them in the name of Jesus and they don't push Jesus on any of them, they just love them. And then when people see the difference and see grace and mercy, they understandably want more of that. And they say, what's that about? It's about Jesus. And then they get introduced to Jesus and people come to know the Lord. But it's not high pressure. There's none of that stuff going on. But here's the deal. The best, most effective nonprofit government entity that does similar work has a success rate of about 30% of people who will actually come out of homelessness and find a, a meaningful, significant, contributing place in our society. My father's house has an 80% success rate. It's remarkable because they love people. And when you and I look down our nose at someone else or before we judge someone else, and really what we're doing is not judging them, we're condemning them. Before we condemn someone for their poor choices, have you always had your act together? Have I? Did I have my act together when Jesus came and found me? Boy, I'm, he's sure lucky that I'm on his team. Man, he was waiting for me to be born and appear on the scene. Boy, I gotta have Jay on. He always had, of course not. And I have to remind myself of that reality at times in my own pride. It's like, man, I've made incredibly poor choices in my life. Jesus still loves me. 
So at the end of the day, what does this come back to? Well, it comes down to re-neighboring ourselves. A neighbor, being a neighbor, as Jesus is defying a neighbor, means life isn't all about you. And it's not about the few. It's about everybody around you. So do you see them? The priest and the Levite saw that Jewish traveler bleeding and in the state of dying on that road. But did they really see him? Or did they just keep on walking? And again, we don't know this detail in the story, but it makes me wonder, were they busy? Were they too busy to help? Was their schedule so full that they couldn't allow God to interrupt it? Were they on their smartphones as they walked by? You know, I don't want to be like that. And sometimes I am. This last week I was in our Safeway in my neighborhood and uh, it was the end of the day and it was rush hour in Safeway. You know, that 5 to 6.30 time when everyone's getting off work and realizing, oh crud, I got to make dinner, let's stop at Safeway. And they have these self-checkout kiosks. There's six of them in the Safeway I go to. Two of them aren't working, all right? So there's only four working and I'm like fourth in line and the line is beginning to build. And all four are busy, but one of them in particular is an Arabic couple. I don't know what nationality they were, but I do, this I do know, they spoke two words of English, please and help. And they had never been to a self-checkout before, evidently. And so the harried attendant who's going back and forth trying to keep the other machines working and you know half the time those things don't work. They say you put something in your bag that didn't and you know, you've done the drill. And I... You have done the drill. (laughs) And everything this poor man is doing is wrong and he can't get the machine to work and all he can say is please and thank you and help me. Okay, three words, please help and thanks. And so this keeps going and you can feel the frustration around the people who are getting in this line and then it becomes visceral and then it becomes visible. People are genuinely getting frustrated. Can you please figure this out? We need to move on. And I was zoning. I was just tired. It had been a tough day, a long day. Had some stuff going on in my family this week that had been very difficult. And I just wasn't all there. And finally they checked out and there was a huge collective sigh of relief that rippled down the whole line. And off they went. And I thought, Jay, who's your neighbor? Here was this opportunity to love someone different than me, different nationality than me, no relationship whatsoever, just by helping them navigate a self-checkout kiosk. And I missed the opportunity. You see, there are times very purposely I want to tell you about the times I get it right. But I also want to share with you those times where I miss those opportunities too. But I can tell you this, after reading this story again, I will not miss the next one. Because the real question in this story is not who is my neighbor. The real question in this story is who will you be a neighbor to? you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that the love you call us to give to others so extravagantly, so generously, so sacrificially is exactly the way you have first 
loved us. Thank you that we can do this through the power of your Holy Spirit because we know you. We know your love and we can live this out. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you that they would cross over from death to life right now by just saying between you and them, Jesus, thank you that you love me. And I receive and respond to your love by asking you to be my Lord and Savior. And Lord, as we prepare to sing about the reality of your kingdom coming, God, would you help us to bring your kingdom by loving the way we have been loved? You are so good. We celebrate a good, gracious, loving God now who is bringing his kingdom. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Man, may his kingdom come. And when you respond to his love for you, then you can love people the way he calls us to, just like we've read in this story today. You can do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. You really can live this out. And if you will do so, you will bring his kingdom. And what Jesus really did today in this story that we read about in chapter 10 was illustrate what he had talked about in Luke chapter six. Let me remind you of this. But to those of you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. But I say, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And so I'm gonna pray a very dangerous prayer for me and you. And that is that God will give us each an opportunity to love someone extravagantly this week and it will probably be the last person you'd ever think it would be and that's who we should look to love Jesus I pray for all of us that we would live out what you have called us to by bringing your kingdom by loving other people and I pray for myself and every person here you'll give us the opportunity to put this into practice Lord we know we get it this is not easy how do you love an enemy you do so by realizing you were an enemy and you were loved. So God, thank you that we can do this and thank you for the promise you give us in this very passage we looked at today. This is the way to life, the way to true life, a life that is joyful and full and purposeful and significant and meaningful is to love other people the way you have loved us. So now we go to live that out in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. So go live for him. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.